0: Well, good evening. If you're visiting or you're watching online tonight and I haven't met you before, my name is Rowan Kemp. I lead the staff team working here alongside the EU. And I want to especially welcome you tonight if you're one of our very precious supporters. This is a great moment, a precious moment, to join together as students in the EU, as staff of the EU and supporters of the EU through the EU Graduates Fund, gather together around God's Word, and we pray that tonight will be an encouragement to you in your walk with the Lord Jesus, as well as your participation in this wonderful ministry at Sydney Uni through the EU. If you're joining with us tonight, let me bring you up to speed. This week, we've been looking at the topic of Christian eschatology eschatology just means study of the end. Traditionally, eschatology is about four things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. But as we've seen this week, really Christian eschatology is about the Lord Jesus. He is described in the New Testament as the last one. Eschatology is about him and his future. We've seen this week that Jesus has already achieved the end for us in his death and resurrection and ascension, that he's achieving his end in us through the work of his spirit within us now, and that he will achieve the end with us when he comes in glory. And we're looking at that final part of that picture, that he's achieving the end with us both tonight and tomorrow night. But I want to start there on your outline, which I hope you've got in front of you. Start with the promise of Jesus' return. This, after all, is the Christian hope, the thing we're looking forward to, the return of the Lord Jesus. You can see there on your page from Acts chapter 1, verse 11, the disciples were told by the angel after they found the empty tomb, sorry, after Jesus had ascended to his father, They were told, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And ever since that moment, Jesus' disciples, including you and me, have been waiting for that promise to be fulfilled, that he would come back. So Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3 verse 20, our citizenship, talking of Christians, is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the book of Revelation, in the very final chapter, Revelation chapter 22, three times Jesus says, look, I am coming soon. Three times he says it, with the response there in the book of Revelation, amen, come Lord Jesus. This is the great Christian hope. This is the fulfilment, in fact, of all the promised days of the Lord that you read about in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, there are these repeated promises that one day the Lord God will come and fulfil all of his promises to rescue his people and judge his enemies. There's a little picture there on your page of that pattern, a promise The Lord comes and he fulfills his promise in rescue and judgment. That repeated Old Testament experience of the Lord coming to rescue through judgment now reaches its completion and perfection in what the New Testament calls the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament refers to the day of Christ or the day of the Lord Jesus, meaning the future return of the Lord Jesus for which we still wait. And you can see that in places listed there on your page, like 2 Thessalonians or 1 Corinthians 1 or 2 Corinthians 1. But as we've seen this week, the Lord Jesus has already come and he's achieved the end for us in his death, resurrection and ascension. He was both the one judged for sin in our place as our representative and the one who was rescued rescued from death into eternal resurrected life. So we live now, today, between these two comings of the Lord Jesus. The Lord came and the Lord will come. And we experience, living as we do between these two comings of the Lord Jesus, we experience partial fulfillment of God's promises now. As we saw yesterday, we are now, by His Spirit, new creations, and together we are the new people of God. But we also wait for the final fulfillment on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, when the Lord Jesus will return. So what we're going to do is spend tonight and tomorrow night looking at this rescue through judgment that Jesus will bring when He comes. Tonight, we look at the rescue. Tomorrow, the judgment. Well, what does God promise when Jesus returns? The answer, glory. You can see there on your outline, I've written glory is hard to define, but you know it when you see it. When you think something is glorious, I wonder what springs to mind. You probably think of something that's sort of bright and shiny, like a sunset or a sunrise, they're glorious. But shiny brightness is just one manifestation of glory. Glory is whatever is impressive, majestic, praiseworthy, or awe-inspiring. That's what something that is glorious is. So your netball team might have won a glorious victory. It didn't mean suddenly you are all bright and shiny on the court. It be- It was just an awe inspiring, magnificent, majestic, praiseworthy victory. An army can have a glorious defeat without it being ironic. Though defeated, they covered themselves with praise through courageous resistance. Well, in the Bible, God is glorious. God is glorious. In Psalm 19, verse 1, a couple of verses will come up on your screen here. Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, we're told that the heavens declare the glory of God. When you see the magnificent sunrise or sunset, yes, you are seeing something that's glorious. It's a shadow, a reflection of the glory, the greater glory of the one true living God. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 24, we're told that God showed His glory to the ancient Israelites when He appeared at Mount Sinai. His glory at Mount Sinai was, was a visible manifestation of His magnificence. You might remember at the end of the book of Exodus, when the Israelites build the tabernacle, the glory of God, the cloud of God's glory fills all the tabernacle. Or in Exodus chapter 33... There's that moment where Moses requests to see God's glory. And God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. God's glory is seen in his character, in his goodness. So John Piper has this particular definition of God's glory. He says, God's glory is the beauty of Of his manifold perfections. It's his infinite and awesome greatness and worth. God's glory is the beauty of his manifold, his many perfections. Well, how is this idea of God's glory connected to the end? Well, in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 14, this is what we're told. We're told that the earth, one day, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. This is God's promise. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. There's a vision at the end. How much will the earth be fi- as filled as much as the waters cover the sea? Stop and think about that phrase for a minute. The, how much do the waters cover the sea? Well, the, the, the waters sort of are the sea, aren't they? Like, I guess the waters completely and utterly fill the sea. Like it's just the waters there's no space left over, isn't it? The waters fully fill the sea. So will be this world. The knowledge of the glory of God, how magnificent and awe-inspiring and praised with, the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth to what extent? as much as the waters cover the sea. For that is a vision of the end. And as in everything, that promise finds its fulfillment, its yes, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, we're told there that we see the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. God has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So the vision of the end is a vision of knowledge of God's glory seen in the face of the Lord Jesus. In particular, we're told in the Bible that the end will mean the revealing of Jesus' glory. You look there on your page from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. That's what the end will mean the revealing, the, the, the showing of Jesus' glory. In fact, the Apostle John got a sneak preview, a sneak peek at Jesus' glory in the beginning of the book of Revelation albeit a vision, so it's wrapped up in ap- apocalyptic imagery. But have a look at what John saw and then wrote down. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, there on your page. John said, "'I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, "'and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, "'and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, "'dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, "'and with a golden sash across his chest.'" And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now, look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Here's a visionary representation of Jesus' glory and divine magnificence. There's the sword representing the power of his word coming out of his mouth. He's got surrounded by lamps and stars representing his sovereignty over all of his people. This revelation of Jesus' glory, that is something to look forward to. Beholding the glory of the one true living God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and seeing him face-to-face. It'll be better than what John saw here because it won't be just for a moment and then the vision is gone. It won't be um, just through a vision but it will be personal, it'll be physical, it'll be eternal. That is the moment when, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The end that we are waiting for is the revelation of Jesus' glory to all people. But it won't just be the Lord Jesus revealed in glory. The astounding truth of the Christian gospel is that we will share Jesus' glory. In fact, that has always been God's intention. Paul writes there in 2 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, God called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or again, Paul writing in Colossians 3 verse 4 When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, what does that mean that I will share his glory? Well, we will share his magnificence, his awesome, praiseworthy status. I take it it does not mean that we'll all have white hair, fiery eyes, and mini swords coming out of our mouths, like in John's vision. Rather, we will share the magnificent awesomeness of Jesus' resurrected being and his rule. Tom Wright put it like this. You can see it there on your screen. By this, Paul seems to mean not luminosity, there is nothing particularly godly after all in shining like a star, but the dignity, worth, honour and status that the Messiah's people will enjoy, sharing that of the Messiah himself, whose glory is that he is the world's true Lord." Now, an important aspect of sharing Jesus' glory will be the transformation of our present decaying bodies so that they become like Jesus' glorious resurrection body. So let's have a little bit of a think about that. There on your page, you can see the heading, Glorious Bodies. Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. When he comes, the Lord Jesus is going to use his power to transform your body, if you're one of his followers through a resurrection like he experienced. Now, Paul gives more detail on that transformation in 1 Corinthians 15. There on your page. He starts by likening dying to being a seed sown into the ground. And then he says, the body that is sown, that is the body that dies, is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown... "...in dishonour, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body." And then he continues, "...if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first. But the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, he says, brothers and sisters, That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, that is, die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself With the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been closed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true death has been swallowed up in victory. So, what are the differences between our present body and the future resurrection body? Paul lists a few of the differences there in verses 42 and 43, which we'll come back to. But maybe the one that causes the most difficulty in our understanding is probably what he says in verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. Haven't we been sort of implying that the future resurrection is bodily, that Jesus himself has a physical resurrection body, flesh and bones, as he himself said to his apostles? So what's this distinction that Paul makes between a natural body and a spiritual body? I mean, it sounds like the resurrection body isn't physical, it's sort of spiritual. Well, what I've done there um, in your outline, in the diagram under the passage, is include the words that Paul used when he wrote this chapter in Greek. Literally, he says, it's sown a psuchikon body and raised a pneumaticon body. So we've got to investigate what do those two words mean? Well, to get a bit of an idea, actually, if we look earlier in his letter, where Paul has used the same two words, I'll put it up on the screen for you. It's from one Corinthians chapter two, verses fourteen and fifteen. Paul says, "The natural person (basukikos word) does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to them, and they are not able to understand them, because they are spiritually or pneumatically discerned. The spiritual person (pneumatikos word)." judges all things, but they are themselves to be judged by no one. Just the simple point I want you to notice is, at this point in the letter, Paul's talking about two different groups of people in the present age. They both have physical bodies. Being pneumaticos or spiritual does not mean you have no physical body. The difference between psuchikos and pneumaticos is not physicality. The words are not about your composition, The words are about animation. What drives you or gives life to you or energises a person. What drives that person is the engine of their being. An example that I've heard which helped me sort of understand this is the example of a steam train. What is a steam train made of? It's not made of steam, is it? It's not composed of steam, it's powered by steam. It's animated, driven by steam. And so a spiritual body is not necessarily a body composed of spirit, made up of spirit. No, it's a body powered, energized, animated, driven forward by the Spirit of God. So Paul's point then, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 15, is not that we're going to go from a physical body to a non-physical body. Now, his point is we're going to go from a physical body now, a psukikon body, energized by normal, natural means, to a Holy Spirit animated physical body, a physical body energized and animated by the Spirit. Now, we have the Spirit now, of course, as Christians, as a first taste of that future experience, and we will continue to have the Spirit, but the Spirit will be the very engine room driving our physical body. So you can see on your page, a picture of the first Adam. Well, I don't know if that's what he actually looked like as he got older, but a picture of the first Adam, the Adam who, in verse 45, became a living being or pasuken, and a picture of the last Adam, Jesus, the one already raised in a spiritual body. And so we can fill in some of the characteristics of these two Adams from the passage, especially verses 42 to 43. The first Adam is perishable, but the second Adam is imperishable. Jesus is no more susceptible to decay or disease. The first Adam dies in dishonour, that his death was a punishment and a reminder of his sin. But Jesus was raised in glory, with no more dishonour or shame. The first Adam died in weakness. There was nothing Adam could do about it. But Jesus was raised in a mighty display of God's power. And the first Adam, as we've seen, died as a naturally energised body. But Jesus was raised as a body animated and powered by the Spirit. And you can continue if you work down the passage if you jump down to verse 47 the first Adam we read came from the dust of the earth but the second Adam the resurrected Jesus comes from heaven and if you jump then down to this verse 53 we can add the first Adam was mortal but the resurrected Jesus was immortal he would never die again there's huge differences isn't there between The natural body and the spiritual body. But the exciting thing, I think, is the continuity. The line that starts at the first Adam and ends at Jesus, the second Adam. Because as Paul says in verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. If you have your faith in the Lord Jesus, You will bear the image of the man of heaven. You will be like the resurrected Jesus. That's an amazing, fantastic truth. You will be raised imperishable. No more disease and decay. Now, I know most of you are still young and in the prime of your youthful adulthood, but there are a number of us here tonight, maybe particularly amongst some of the supporters who've been around for a while, who are starting to feel the reality of just a little bit of decay. But there will be no more fading eyesight. There will be no more thinning hair or groaning muscles or restricted movement. Can you imagine life without cancer, without mental illness, with no more broken bones, no more period pain? We will be raised imperishable. We'll be raised in glory with no more sin. How good will that be? We'll be raised in power as He awesomely transforms us from our current weakness. We'll be raised immortal, no more death. That is our hope, our sure, certain future in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be raised with a body like Jesus. Isn't that brilliant? Isn't that glorious? Speed on that day, Lord Jesus. And it doesn't matter whether you've died or whether you're still alive when Jesus returns, because that's the very point Paul is trying to um, comfort the Corinthians with. This amazing transformation is what awaits every believer in Jesus. There is no doubt that God is going to transform every single one of his people into the likeness of his Son from heaven. There is sure hope here, not just for weak and failing bodies, but for victory over death itself. I don't know how many funerals you've been to, chatting to a few of you, I know that some of you have been to no funerals ever. I must say, I've been to quite a few funerals. Funerals of relatives, funerals of friends, funerals of babies funerals of uni students and I'm sure I will go to more and more funerals as the years go by, as will you. There is always grief at a funeral because we mourn the loss of this person's life with us. But one day, each of us will be in that coffin. Every person who gathers to mourn at a funeral. Will one day take their turn as the lifeless corpse in the box at the front. I'm not being morbid. I'm not being callous. It's just true. And the more funerals you go to, the more obvious that becomes. Death is the great tsunami that none of us can outswim. It has a 100% capture rate because we are all 100%. We are all sinners. And yes, that prospect is depressing. Except, except that the Lord Jesus walked out of his tomb on the third day after his death. He walked out. And not as a temporary reprieve or a momentary resuscitation, only to die again. He was resurrected in immortal, imperishable, glorious, transformed physicality. Death may have a 100% capture rate, but it turns out that death's hold on you is only temporary. Just as it could not hold the Lord Jesus... So the Lord Jesus shares his glorious resurrection with us. When he returns, the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ, all those who put their trust in him, will be raised imperishable and glorious. And that'll be you. Now, what difference does that truth make? How does that hope shape your present? Well, those who know the Lord Jesus face death differently. The world is in slavery to its fear of death, so says the book of Hebrews. But we know the Lord Jesus who has defeated death and in him we will have victory over death. So as followers of Jesus, we can face our own death with sure hope, not with fear. And we grieve for those who've died in the Lord with certainty and joy, not with bottomless sadness. For we are certain that we will be reunited with them when Jesus returns, and we have the joy of knowing they are safely in his care now. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1 says this, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, So that you do not grieve like the rest of humankind, who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. When Jesus returns and the dead are raised... That will be the completion of what Jesus has already started, both for us and in us. It's a good example, really, of the three ways Jesus achieves the end that we've been looking at this week. You can see the picture there in your notes. In his own resurrection from the dead, as the first fruits, Jesus achieves the end for us. And when we become a Christian, we begin to share in Jesus' resurrection life. Not his, not his physical resurrection body, not yet. But spiritually, we genuinely become new creations. We've moved from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive in Christ. This is Jesus achieving the end in us by His Spirit in the present. But when Jesus returns, we will be resurrected and revealed with Him in glory. We'll be, share His glorious, immortal resurrection body That will be Jesus achieving the end with us. Well, what will it be like, that new resurrection life? Will it be anything like the popular image of life after death? You know, sitting on clouds, wearing white, playing harps, spending all your time apparently looking down on the rest of us like spectators stuck in some endless eternal football game. Is that what it's gonna be like? Well, Tom Wright points out that this is not the Bible's picture of a physically resurrected Jesus, nor of us. You can see the quote there on the page. He says, the use of the word heaven to denote the ultimate goal of the redeemed, though of course hugely popularized by medieval and subsequent piety, is severely misleading And does not begin to do justice to the Christian hope. The ultimate destination is not going to heaven when you die, but being bodily raised into the transformed glorious likeness of Jesus Christ. Thus if we want to speak of going to heaven when we die, we should be clear that this represents the first and far less important stage of a two-stage process resurrection isn't life after death. Resurrection is life after life after death. When we die, we can be certain, according to the Bible, that we are with the Lord. We can rest certain that those who die in the household of faith are secure in the Lord Jesus' care. How they experience that Waiting as they still are for Jesus' return and their bodily resurrection, how that their experience of that, what that's like, it's not made clear to us in the Bible. But we do have the reassuring promise of the Lord Jesus to the repentant thief on the cross. Today you will be with me, said Jesus, in paradise. So, whatever that transitory experience of life uh, experience is like. We know that our eternal future is resurrected immortality. And that's what God has rescued us for. And if that's not glorious enough, if that's not wonderful enough, there is actually a yet bigger promise of God for when Jesus returns. It's not just glorious resurrection bodies for those who trust in Jesus, but it's an entire glorious new creation. The point to recognise here is that just as sin had a devastating consequence for humanity and on all of creation, God's plans to rescue extend not just to human beings, but to all of His creation. What God has planned, the end He is taking all things to, is a comprehensive and holistic restoration of everything that has been put wrong by sin. And just as in Genesis 3, when the creation, that where the creation is cursed because of human sin, so too creation's rescue is tied up to our rescue when Jesus returns. I'll explain, have a look what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there on your page. Paul says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The sure future for the creation around us is liberation from bondage to decay. Creation will share the freedom from decay that the resurrected believers, the resurrected followers of Jesus enjoy. So what does that mean? It means the removal of the curse from Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, as a result of human sin, work became frustrating, work became toil and the ground produced thistles and thorns and made humanity's work in the garden difficult. The removal of that curse means that you have all the goodness of creation without all the difficult bits. It's the blessing of life without pain and suffering. It's fruitfulness of work without toil and frustration. It's a picture of rest Now, when the Bible talks about rest, we immediately think rest, that means kicking back, video games, and beach holidays, right? That's what we think rest is. But in the Bible, no, rest is much better in the Bible than that. Rest in the Bible is the six Ps. God's people in God's place, enjoying His presence with His provision and protection and working in His project. That's rest. Yes, it includes rest working in his project but when you experience rest in its fullness it's work without toil work without frustration life without pain so if i may be permitted some biblically informed i hope speculation i assume that in the new creation when we all get there in christ in the new creation i assume there will be people to meet There will be things to learn. There will be discoveries to be made. There'll be songs to write. There'll be things to build. There'll be places to explore. There'll be technologies to create. There'll be stories to tell. There'll be waves to catch. There'll be mountains to climb. There'll be gardens to tend. There'll be creatures to care for, there'll be jobs to do, and there'll be loving service to offer, and we'll do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and to His glory. We'll have all the time in the world and not a moment to be bored. All the time in the world, but not a moment to be bored. So let's put all of this together. On your page I've printed out for you Revelation chapter 21 and the first couple of verses of chapter 22 coming at the very end of the Bible this is part of the apocalyptic vision that Jesus gave John about the end so I'm going to read through it with you and just make a few comments now notice the very First three words, then I saw, right? So John is writing down this vision. It's an apocalyptic vision. It's using cosmic language to communicate the great significance of real world events. It's not to be understood literally. It's not a literal description of what will happen. It's truth wrapped up in a metaphor in this cosmic imagery. So John says, then I saw a new heaven And a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea that's a picture of complete and comprehensive newness it wasn't I saw a couple of new things it was no no the first heaven and the first earth were gone and it new heaven and new earth comprehensive thoroughgoing newness no more sea means no more chaos no more disorder because in the Bible, and particularly in the book of Revelation, the sea is a place of chaos and disorder, the place from, from which evil arises. But there's no more it, no, no more of that. He continues, verse two, "I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband." I mean, that's a bit weird. It's a city dressed as a bride. Coming down out of heaven. Okay, let's just hold on to that image for a moment. Just hold on to it. Let's keep going. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. God's people, see? They're in God's place, enjoying God's presence. Verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. We talked about the six Ps God's people in God's place, enjoying God's presence, with His protection and provision. What protection and provision does the one true living God provide for His people here in this picture in the end? Well, there's no more death. There's no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Those, the old order, all those things have passed away. That's his provision and his protection. And I, I was sharing with the uh, postgrads and staff in the, the EPS meeting today, I was sharing that I, I heard an old preacher once preach on this passage and he made a great observation. He said, in this picture just here, what's the only thing that God's people bring And the answer in verse 4, he said, is their tears? The only thing people bring to this are their tears. And what is God's response? He wipes away every tear from their eyes. You know, when a little kid is crying, maybe a niece, a nephew, and they're crying, you just sort of bend down and just, just wipe away that tear. Under their eye. That's the picture. <laughs> That's what the one true living God is going to do. We bring our tears, He wipes them away. Verse 5 He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Notice just here, it is all the work of God. He is the giver. He is making everything new. He says, I will give water of life without cost. He is the one who is doing all of this work. Verse 7, those who are victorious, he says, will inherit all this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Just pointing out here that you get in these couple of verses, rescue and judgment. When the end comes, when the Lord comes, There is rescue and judgment. And tomorrow we will particularly think about the judgment aspect of this picture here. Verse 9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Okay, remember how we saw a bit earlier in verse 2, we had this city dressed as a bride. Some new information to add here, this city dressed as a bride turns out to be the wife of a sheep. (laughs) Well, actually, the wife of a lamb, the lamb. Who's the lamb? Well, Jesus in the book of Revelation is the lamb. So the city, the bride, is the wife of the lamb, Jesus. Hold on to that thought, we'll keep going. Verse 11, this city shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. So God has dressed this city, the bride, with his own glory. It shines with the glory of God. He's given it, shared with it, his own glory. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates. And with 12 angels at the gates, on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So 12 gates representing Old Testament Israel, and 12 foundations with the apostles representing Jesus' followers, the new Israel. That is, this city is actually the gathered people of God. It's not actually a city. It's a people. It's the people of God gathered together, prepared by God with whom he shared his glory, prepared as the wife, the bride of the Lamb, Jesus, who is head of the church. This is a picture not of a city. It's a picture of people, us, sharing the glory of God. Verse 15, the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. This is where all the engineers get excited. Look, I'm sorry, by the way, about my quip about awkward engineers last... Um, Jenny, my wife, who's here with us this week, she just helpfully said to me afterwards, you you know that that was just a projection of your own engineering self, right, when you said that. (laughs) And she's right. There was just that moment of, as an ex-engineer myself, i Yeah, so I'm sorry that I projected my awkwardness onto you. Here is your glory, right here, in this next (laughs) little bit, okay, right? The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. Now notice the number 12 is appearing a lot. I mean, you might've forgotten your 12 times tables, but 12 times 12 is 144. You might've missed that one. But we had 12 gates, 12 foundations. The dimensions are 12 times 1,000 and it's the same sort of in each sort of dimension. The wall is 12 by 12 thick. What does all of that mean? I think that the predominance of the number 12 is saying this is the complete people of God. The fact that the city, which represents the people, is a cube, it's sort of perfect, symmetrical. In fact, it's an enlarged version of the most holy place in the, tabern- the Old Testament tabernacle or temple. But in the Old Testament tabernacle or temple only one person one human being got to go into that most holy place to meet with God the high priest once a year but here the whole people are this city temple with whom God dwells all of God's people are the holy of holies verse 18 the wall was made of jasper the city of pure gold as pure as glass the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate. the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth ber- I. I would have been, I'm glad it was revealed to John and not me, right? Because I would have been hopeless at identifying all of those precious stones. <laughs> I don't know how he did it, but I just would not have had a clue. But anyway, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each gate made of a single pearl. That, okay, those are, those are big pearls. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen those oysters. Like that, that that's, a, that's a big pearl. Oh, remember, apocalyptic imagery. Okay, yeah, not literal. Yeah, okay, right, yeah, yeah, okay, all right, back on. the great city of the, the great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I don't know if you know, the old covenant temple and tabernacle were both decorated with lots of precious stones and they were overlaid with gold, but not like this. Not like this. This is gleaming, spectacular, so pure. It's a picture of the holiness. But remember, it's not a place, it's a people. It's a picture of your holiness and my holiness as the bride of Christ. Dressed with all of God's glory. This is you and me and all who have faith in Christ through the ages. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb its lamp. So there was no more need for a temple as a mediation point between God and his people because now God in Christ dwells directly amongst his people. Verse 24, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no, more, no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it nothing impure will enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So notice there what it says about entry into this city, this people. It's for all nations. All nations. It's always, the gates are always open. That is, no one who wants it will be turned away. And the key... It's those, for those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, Jesus' book of life. Those who've put their trust, their faith in the Lord Jesus as their Saviour and Lord. We continue on. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations no longer will there be any curse It's the fulfillment of what was begun and then lost in the garden of eden you might remember that adam and eve because of their sin were cut off from the tree of life the tree that would grant them immortality by keeping death at bay but here The tree of life is on both sides of the river, which I take it means it's always accessible. And it's fruiting every month. So you can always receive its fruit. No more death. That's what they're saying. Absolutely no more death. The throne of God and of the Lamb, we read, will be in the city. And His servants will serve Him. They will see His face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. God's people in God's place, enjoying his presence, with his provision and protection, and yes, working in his project, they will reign forever and ever. So what do we do with all of this? Let me just share one thing as I come towards the end. One thing. In light of this picture, the great vision of the end that Jesus is securing with us, take hold of the life that is truly life. Take hold of the life that is really life. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, command those who are rich in the present world, and frankly, that's probably everybody in this room, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is really life. This life is a shadow of the life to come, the life that is truly life. Life... or. Paul's word there to us, command to us, is to live now in a way that reflects that you know where true life is. The life you are really looking for is not found in a job or a promotion or a new house or a renovation or new opportunities. The life you are really looking for is not found in another relationship, or in family, or in travel, or in sex. The life that you really long for is not found in success, or in doing good, or in investments or in five-star dining. The life that you are really looking for is the resurrection life that Jesus brings as part of the new creation. That is what you are really longing for. So do all you can to take hold of that life that is really life. Have you ever read the Narnia books? Hand up if you read the Narnia books at some point. I mean read them, not watch the movies. I mean read the book. <laughs> oh, suddenly no one wrote <laughs> it. Well, those movies, they're from a book. Anyway, there's this, there's, this, there's this series of books called the Narnia series, written by C.S. Lewis. It is a fascinating read. It's a way more interesting read as an adult than it is as a child. Way, way, way more interesting. Because it is a detailed, extended allegory of the Christian faith. That's how C.S. Lewis wrote it. And the final book, The Last Battle, reflects on the new creation that God has promised in the Lord Jesus. And in the quote there on your page, the unicorn, and yes, it's a unicorn, and yes, the unicorn speaks, so yes, double wow. Um, (laughs) In the quote, the unicorn captures the idea of the life that is really life. When he enters the new narnia, new creation. And this is what we read in the book. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. The life you're looking for is the resurrection life that Jesus will bring as part of the new creation. That is your real country. That is when you will say, I belong here. I have come home at last. And it's that hope that generates faith and love in the present. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. We follow Jesus in faith and love now because of that hope of sharing in his glory. In the New Testament, hope is not the bonus feature. It's not the extra add-on. Oh, it's great that you're a Christian. By the way, Jesus is coming back and there's all this cool stuff at the end. No, our hope of sharing in Jesus' glory is the motivator for faith and love. Now, I just wonder whether those might have slipped places in your thinking Have you somehow relegated hope to second place? Or is your longing for this hope carrying you forward in faith and love each day? Uh, In an essay, C.S. Lewis reflected on our sad tendency to lose sight of the glory that Jesus has promised, and he wrote this. He said, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promise of reward And the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joys are offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum. Because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So stop settling for mud pies. Take hold of the life that's truly life. Set your hope fully there on the grace and glory to be given you when the Lord Jesus is revealed. And let that sure hope drive you forward in faith and love in the present. For we have a big, glorious future ahead of us. The end that Jesus will achieve with us, it is glorious. But get this. It's actually not an end. It's a beginning. In another section of The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis captures this as the characters enter the new Narnia. Now, the Jesus figure in his stories, not no spoilers, I guess, but the Jesus figure in the stories is the lion, Aslan. And this is what Aslan announces. The term, or the, we might say the semester, is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke... He no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever. All our life in this world, all your life, all your adventures, the jobs that you'll have, your family, What successes, what sicknesses, what joys, what struggles, all your adventures in this world are only the cover and the title page. We haven't even got to chapter one of the great story of Jesus and his consummated kingdom in all its fullness, the new heavens and new earth in all its glory. Do you see it coming? Do you see it? Have you taken hold of it? Because the risen Jesus says, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. And the people of God say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. As you bow your heads and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us in your great mercy and kindness the Lord Jesus and all of his great and precious promises. We long for the day when you will come and set all things right, when your glory will be revealed and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that your son Jesus is Lord to your fatherly glory. We pray for all of those here who don't yet know you as their saviour and their Lord. Pour out your spirit into them. Grant them understanding and faith and new birth that they might share with us your eternal glory. And we pray for the campus of Sydney University. We pray for the 70,000 who are lost without your grace. We pray in your mercy. Move mightily by your spirit. Draw thousands to yourself for their salvation and for your glory. Lord, we pray that the truths that we have looked at tonight won't be stolen away by the evil one from our minds and hearts. But you would write them deep into our minds and hearts that we might hold on to these truths for weeks, years, months, decades to come that this sure hope you have given us in the risen Lord Jesus would drive our faith and our love each day. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus.